Well, I'm excited about this series. We're beginning a brand new series today called Pitfall. And anybody, uh, anybody a child of the 80s remember Pitfall on the Atari? Anybody remember this game? Uh, this was my favorite, one of my favorite video games growing up. It was this guy, like Indiana Jones type character. He would go running this, you know, praise like six pixels, like running through uh, this jungle. He would grab onto the vines, like stand on alligator eyes and stuff like that, not to fall into traps, have to jump over scorpions to find the gold at the end of the tunnel. And all along the way, there were these traps and obstacles to stop him from getting what he was designed and where he wanted to go to the treasure. And what we're going to look at from this from a spiritual perspective is this, is we have been designed to have this relationship, this intimacy, this connection with God. That's what we were created for. We were designed. We, we want that. We long for that. And whether we admit it or not, it's part of our who we are and part of our, our makeup. And we have this pathway that we're trying to walk. And along the way, there are going to be pitfalls. There's going to be trials. There's going to be traps and things that try to detour us and move us away. I'm going to tell you a story that you, you might think I was kind of a jerk growing up, and sometimes I was, but this was the one illustration that came to my mind. My brother and I, we, we lived close to a park growing up that had like a walking trail on it, and uh, we used to go, we, we, we were both kind of pranksters, and one day we were really bored. We were probably, I don't know, 12, 13 years old, something like that, and didn't know better, and we thought, you know what would be fun? We, we were messing in our little garage, and we found this fishing wire, clear fishing wire, and you know what we thought it would be fun? It would be fun to like wrap around the fishing wire, around the trees, right at ankle level for people on this walking path. And uh, so we did it, and you see these people come strolling along and catch it, man, they'd almost fall, and we, you know, we'd die laughing. It was a lot of fun until this guy one time tripped and fell, and he was probably twice our size at that point. Our laughter was a little too loud, and he saw where we were and realized we were the ones that had done this, and he started coming after us. Well, my brother and I took off as quick as we could, and uh, we, we got away from him. He's probably still looking for us somewhere. I hope he's not listening online and like, I know I'm coming after you now. But uh, but we, we would create these traps and pitfalls for people as they're just trying to stroll through life. And the truth is this, This is going to happen in our spiritual life as well. We've spent the entire year to this point. We started in January. I don't know if if you've come in in the middle of the year or or maybe you've been coming since January and I haven't told you, like, this is one huge series, but we've basically been in this, what I call kind of a, a doctrinal dissertation on what Christianity is and what it's not. And we tried to strip away some of the pieces that have been labeled on there and stuck on there and say at the core, what is it? And if you remember back in January, February, March, April, and May, we talked about what it meant to embrace the gifts of the Christian life by pursuing peace and and embracing pleasure and choosing hope and discovering meaning in our life. And we walked through that journey of understanding those are things that happen and bubble up in our life when we surrender to Christ. And then we looked at what it meant to have our life, to take those things and have them blended together in our life. That Christianity isn't just a part of who we are, it's all of who we are. It becomes, it becomes down to, our, to the fingers and our toes. It's every part of who we are. It's not a label we wear, but it's how we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love others as ourselves. 
And then over the last month, we've been hearing these stories of people in our church that have been living out of this blended life of loving the Lord and loving people and showing how their faith has been put into works and how it's actually being expressed out. And this has been a journey that we've been on of trying to say, let's embrace the core of Christianity, not what culture says it is, not what somebody else defines it to be. And I want us to end this journey before we head somewhere different in September with understanding as beautiful as that picture is and what a beautiful masterpiece that is. There are people and there are things in our life that will try to trip us up and mar that masterpiece, that will try to get us off derailed in our faith, that will try to make us take steps in an opposite direction than the direction we should go. And the truth is these pitfalls have been around for generations. These aren't brand new to our culture. It's not something new that just popped up this week. It's not new to this city. It's not new anywhere. This has been around since the time of Jesus. And actually, Jesus spent most of his time, as much as he spent his time spreading hope to people, he also spent much of his time exposing those whose faith had become misguided because they were actually trying to create religious systems that move people farther away from God than closer to him. If you study the Gospels, you get this incredible balance of Jesus going and healing and speaking hope into people's lives and then him coming and directly dealing with the religious leaders of that day and saying, you know what? You're wrong. What you're doing is wrong. You're creating traps and pitfalls for people and you need to deal with that. And this brings us to the passage we're going to look at today, which is Matthew 23. And so over the next few weeks, go ahead, if you've got your Bible, however you want to access, though, we're going to be in Matthew 23 today. And over the next few weeks, we're going to work through this chapter and look at some of the pitfalls that Jesus warned us about and how we can identify and avoid those. Now, before we jump right into that chapter, let me give you a little context of where we are and where Jesus is at this point in his life. He uh, is toward the back end of his time here on earth. It's actually Passover week when we get to Matthew 23. And so just remember, right before Passover week, Jesus entered Jerusalem to great fanfare. He came in riding a donkey. People were crying, Hosanna. The triumphant entry had happened. He rode that donkey all the way down to the temple. He gets off at the temple, and he is overcome with what he sees. The worship and practice of sacrifice to God has been manipulated to profit for the religious elite and those who claim to speak for God, and he gets angry, very angry. And he goes wild. He starts flipping the money changers' tables, spreading their money everywhere. He starts letting the animals go that they were selling for sacrifice and chastises them. You've turned my father's house that's supposed to be a house of prayer into a den of robbers. I mean, he is angry. He makes a scene in the center of Passover week, in the center of Jerusalem, and then he does something crazy. He gets off the donkey, and he heads out of town. Like, he just leaves. He's like, I'm sick of you guys. And he gets out and goes. And the next day, he shows back up. So he comes back in, this time not with all the fanfare, not with people crying Hosanna. As a matter of fact, at this point, the religious leaders are ready, and they greet him at the temple. They're like, all right, what are you going to do this time? Like, we're here. You're not going to catch us off guard this time. And here's what they decide to do. They decide to start peppering him with questions. So all morning and all afternoon, they are just throwing question, doctrinal question, this, that, questions that have been part of a debate for years and centuries that nobody has even come to conclusion on. And they're throwing these questions at him. And man, he is just answering every one of them with wisdom and truth. 
wisdom and truth. I mean, they're like, all right, let's try another one and another one. Like, and they, they keep says, if you look at Matthew 22, they're like, well, he answered them wisely. So you ask him a question. Well, and it got to the point, Matthew 22, the last verse, it says this. From that day on, they just got tired of it. They said no one dared ask him any more questions. They were like, all right, because here's what's happening. They were trying to show him to be a fraud, but the more questions they asked him, the more their lives were showing to be fraudulent. It was exposing the fraud of their life. And so at the end of this, they're done with their questions. And they probably, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes, they all begin to leave Jesus. And it says that he then turns and speaks to his disciples. And this is where 23, Matthew 23, uh, kicks in. He, he moves his focus from the religious leaders and begin to address the crowd and his disciples. And what he does here is nothing short of a scathing expose on the religious leaders of that day. He doesn't hold back. He actually pronounces seven woes of judgment upon them. And just as the day before he had physically cleansed the temple, in this chapter, he spiritually and intellectually cleanses the temple of the false and corrupt aspects that were on high display during that Passover week. It's an incredible picture, these two chapters, in Matthew 22, the physical cleansing of the temple, and in Matthew 23, of these pronouncement of these woes, where he is intellectually and spiritually cleansing the temple as well. So that's where we're going to pick up the story of Matthew 23, kind of a, a key moment here. And let's listen in and hear what Jesus says, that these pitfalls can be that have come into the Pharisees' lives, come into the religious people of that day. And he says, how can we learn from these, identify these, and make sure we don't embrace corrupt and counterfeit religious practices? Let's read Matthew 23, 1 through 7 to get started with it. And it says this, Then Jesus said to the crowd and his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you. Let me tell you what that means real quick. Moses' seat was the teaching seat. It was where you sat to read the scriptures. All right, so when you would sit on Moses' seat, you would actually read the law of Moses. So he's saying, look, when they read that, listen to that, because that's the good thing. That's about the only good thing. He says, so do and observe what they tell you while they're reading from Moses' seat, but not the works they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their uh, phylacteries broad and their fringes long. The phylacteries and the fringes are part of what they would wear that day with scripture on them to kind of, it was a costume they would wear to show off how spiritual they were. They make them wide, broad and long, and they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. Now, this is just the introduction. Like, he hasn't even pronounced any woes yet. He's just like, let me set the stage for you right here. And basically, he said, Jesus is like, I've had enough. I have had enough of these scribes and Pharisees, these people that have taken the religion of the Jews and of God and the pursuit of worship of the one true God, but Jehovah, and they've turned it into a mockery. They have laid these traps and these pitfalls for people to fall into, and it's trapped so many people into religion instead of a relationship with God. And Jesus in these opening verses teach us how to spot a scribe or a Pharisee, someone who has manipulated the truth for their own gain and their own purposes. Look, I want you to see this morning three marks of a Pharisee. Because you know what? They're still around today. 
there are still Pharisees in religion and in churches today. And the first mark of a Pharisee is found in verse 2 and 3, and it's that they're all words and no action. They sit and teach at Moses' seat. They speak it, but they don't practice it. The first sign of a Pharisee is somebody who can say the words, but they don't practice what they preach. We all know people like that, right? We've all engaged people, whether, it's, whether it comes to spiritual or not, whether it just comes to, to life. But in a spiritual place, a sure sign of a Pharisee who somebody would say, listen to me, but don't do as I do. These rules are for you. I'm not necessarily the one going to follow these rules as well. But the second thing that they are, it says they try to pick up heavy burdens, and, but they don't lift a finger to help. They're all commands, but they never serve. They love telling people what to do, but they'll never pick up and be the, take up the role of a servant themselves. They think everybody else should serve them, but how dare they have to serve anybody? Another sure sign of a Pharisee. And the third one is this, is they're all show and no depth. They love the places of honor. They love being seen. They love seeing people give them honor and praise, but there's no depth to who they are. And like I said, these kind of people still exist today. Every church I've ever served in, I've seen people that have demonstrated these qualities of Pharisees. I know pastors, pastors of churches that demonstrate these qualities of a Pharisee. And the truth is, in my own life, I've at times fallen into the trap of engaging into the practice of Pharisees. And probably if you look at your own life, you have as well. These are very easy things to do. But Jesus, this is what he's pushing back on at the very beginning. He's like, if you find yourself in one of these three things, all words, no action, all commands, no service, all show, no depth, then guess what? You are manipulating the gospel. You're changing it from what I desired it to be. And one of the things I most appreciate about Jesus was this. As much as he confronted cultural dirty sins of his time, so he would go He'd talk with the woman at the well and deal with her adultery. He would deal with all kinds of the dirty cultural sins. He didn't stop there. He actually went deeper than just the exterior sins, and he dealt with the self-righteous sins that we hide in our heart. And I'm grateful that Jesus did that, that he didn't just keep the, you know, this is about changing your behavior. He understood that it was about changing your heart, and he goes after our self-righteous sins. And so today, what I want us to do is look at these first couple of pitfalls that he lays out there, things that will trip us up, things that will ensnare us as we're walking through our spiritual journey. So jump down to Matthew twenty-two thirteen, and this is the first woe, the first thing that he speaks against the Pharisees and the scribes. He says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourself nor allow those who would enter to go in. Now, I don't know if you understand just how inflammatory that statement right there was. Now, let me read it again. And imagine you are a religious leader of that day, that you are the one that you think everybody looks up to, that you're the one pointing people to God. And here's what he's saying. You're a hypocrite. You actually shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. And you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go. And he's like, you're the obstacle. You're the problem. And he is in their face hard very quickly. Before we move past this, there's probably a couple words I want us to make sure we understand fully. And the first one is the word woe. And we, maybe we've heard that. But I don't think most of us walk around our days pronouncing woes upon people. 
I don't think, you know, I, I hear it sometimes in the subway. Yeah, maybe they don't use the word woe, but they're pronouncing damnation upon people. I mean, you, you hear those things, but most of us are not walking around going, woe to you who stole my seat. You know, we're not doing those kind of things. And so what is a woe? A woe is actually an expression of grief and denunciation. Jesus is saying that this practice, what you're doing is bad, harmful, and hurtful, and it must be avoided at all costs because it is going to bring dire consequences into your life and to the lives of those that you influence. He is saying, avoid this at all costs. What I'm telling you that you're doing, woe to you, because it will bring dire consequence. And the other word I want to make sure we understand is the word hypocrite. We, that's a word we often use and hear in our culture today, but in that day, it didn't just mean somebody who says one thing and does another. It actually would be a word that would describe a play actor. A hypocrite would be somebody who is an actor in a play who, who puts on a false face, a fake facade. And so basically what he's calling them is imposters. And when he calls them hypocrites, he says, you're not really what you say you are. You're just acting. You're role playing. And you need to get past that. He's basically telling them, you know what? You're a joke. He's telling them you're a joke. What you're doing is a play. It's a farce. And you shouldn't be Listen to. These are strong, strong words. As we're going through this, you kind of understand in just a few chapters why these men are the ones calling for Jesus to be crucified, Jesus to be put to death, because he is attacking them. But even more than attacking them, he's attacking this religious system that they have put in place. And so when we look at verse 13 again, what does this first woe really boil down to? And I think it boils down to one word. It's the woe when it deals with manipulation. What these Pharisees were doing were manipulating the gospel of grace that God had been demonstrating throughout history. Instead of grace that meant following God, now following God meant religious, personal, and financial burdens. It meant a life of always being behind and owing God. They were manipulating it so that nobody could win. I don't know if you used to go to arcades or things like that. One of my, I used to love the game, the claw. Right? You remember that game? You know, you'd push forward, over, hit the button. And I, it looked so easy. Like there was a little ball sticking up. You're like, I got that. I can do that one. And it would go down, and the claw would grab. And, man, it was almost there, and then it would fall. And like I remember sitting there watching for hours, and nobody win this thing. And one of the guys that worked there said, well, it's rigged. It's rigged against you to not win. Like the claws thing, and he started describing the whole thing to me. And I was like, but I really think I can do it. He's like, no, you can't. You can't. And I wanted to keep trying. And he was like, you just can't do it. And that's what they had. The Pharisees had created a rigged system that these guys couldn't win. The people that were following, trying to follow them, try, they were in a no-win situation. Just, But they kept paying their quarters. They kept putting their money in, kept doing whatever they were told to do, thinking that one day it would bring pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope in their life. And instead, it was bringing the exact opposite. And this was called, what they would do is they would elevate their own set of rules and teachings, and it was called a rabbi's yoke, a yoke. It was like a, it would put a burden that you would have to carry. And if you followed a certain rabbi, you began to follow their yoke. And to become a follower of Pharisee or rabbi, you had to be willing to pick up their yoke. And this was an incredible, difficult way to live. They were constantly adding new rules, making it burdensome, uh, the things that they wanted you to do to follow them. And this is why in verse 13, Jesus says, you're actually shutting the door on them. You're moving them away from the gospel. 
How do we recognize these religious yokes in our life or that we're being manipulated or that we're actually manipulating others? I think it shows up in a number of ways. One, when we try to create followers of men instead of followers of God, that's manipulation. When we actually try to get people to follow us or we find ourselves following men instead of following God. We're more passionate about a person's teaching than we are about the teachings of Christ. We're being manipulated or we're manipulating others. When, that, when the teachings don't lead to freedom and truth, but instead they lead us toward bondage and lies. Toward more bondage and more lies, this is manipulation. When we elevate personal philosophies and practices and not the truth of the gospel. When I say, this is what I prefer, this is what I think we should do, and it's not elevating the practices of the gospel. When I diminish the work of God and instead elevate the work of man. When I say, yeah, I know what Jesus did, I know what all that, but you still have to do this, this, and this. When we elevate our own works, when it creates barriers to God that God has already knocked down. That's manipulation. And when God has already knocked down the barrier of sin in our life through the forgiveness of Christ, and we start putting other barriers up, that's manipulation. And when we elevate the leader as the way of salvation instead of Christ himself. I, I, and the sad part is I know churches I know men, I know women, I know people who live their life passionately as manipulators of the gospel. And they set these traps in front of people and they create people that follow them and they create barriers that people have to get over. And how does this impact our lives today? Here's how it shows up. We start to equate the pursuit of Christ with a list of religious practices. So we say, you know, if I'm really serious about God, I have to do these five things every day. I have to read this much scripture. I have to memorize this many verses. I have to give this much money. I have to go to church this many times. And we start making these lists of religious practices. But guess what? These practices list constantly gets changed and updated. If you do this and you get comfortable with this, guess what? There's another level and another level. It's the never-ending video game. It's another level, another level, another level. It just keeps going. And then we elevate the prosperity of a person instead of the advance of the gospel. The person who is leading that, we, we elevate them and we want their to, the prosperity of a person. I want my own prosperity instead of worrying about the prosperity of the gospel or the health of the church. And then we create levels of spirituality and access to the blessings of God. This is, to me, one of the most dangerous things. Instead of saying, we've all heard maybe the saying, if you've been in church a lot, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Like to come to Jesus, it's just level. You know, no, nobody is there. No, but here's what we do. That may be true, but then we get all spiritual. We start manipulating the gospel and we start creating gates and ways that people have to work through. And you have to prove yourself till you get to the really good blessings of God. That's manipulation. It's like a Christian multi-level marketing strategy. You know, you do this and you get these five people to follow you, get them to have five people to follow you. And now you're in the inner circle. You're at the gold level, the diamond level. I mean, that's the way it's presented when, when the gospel is manipulated. And we, here's the, what we do. We just keep the fruits of the Spirit just out of reach of people to truly experience. Like we say, you know, if you did make one more step, make one more convert, do one more thing, then you will really understand what peace is. You'll feel loved. You'll feel grace. And we manipulate it in that way. What's the danger of manipulation is this. It's corruption at its very core. The gospel gets corrupted. People never experience the true relationship with Christ and their creator, and they are shut out, as it says in verse 13. Instead, what they do is this. They either abandon this corrupt faith 
completely or they get stuck in this trap in this mouse wheel trying to do something that can't be done. They get they either leave and say, I am done, get me out of here, which if that's what true Christianity was, this manipulation of the gospel, I'd want out as well. I wouldn't be, I'd be a skeptic of it as well, this manipulation of it. And so we either do one of these two things when we get caught, we get caught in the mouse wheel or we say, I'm done. I'm done with God. I'm done with the religion. And we step out. And I imagine all across this room, we've all made those decisions at some point in our life when it comes to our faith, if we've been caught in the manipulation of it and the corruptness of it, where somebody has changed it and shifted it on us. And we just either get caught up thinking it's about do, do more, do more, do more, do more, do more, do more. And we tire out or we're just done and we walk away. And if that's you this morning, I want you to understand if that's what your idea of Christianity is, you have been tricked and misled. And I want to invite you to something different, to something that is level at the foot of the cross. And it's grace. It's not something that you have to earn or do or deserve. It's something that is given to you. The love of God is not you earning it to receive it. It's you give it, It's him giving it to you freely to experience it wholly. He's not holding anything back from you. He is pouring it out abundantly. Don't let anyone manipulate or corrupt the gospel to you in such a way that you think you have to do something to earn God's love and grace. That's a woe. Second woe is in verse 15. And it says this, it is the woe, what I call the woe of guilt. And verse 15 says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Again, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much the child of hell as yourself. This is not getting any better. He's not letting up at all. I mean, it's just like a hammer to the one toe, and now he just took it to the other one. I mean, he is just bound, 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 hitting on these guys. And this second woe, this practice to avoid to make sure we aren't put, putting into action, is this idea, like I said, of guilt. The Pharisees were basically in competition with one another to see which one create the largest group of followers. That's what he says when you go find a proselyte. So that, here's what would happen. These guys would create their yokes, what I talked about in the first woe, and then they would go and find people, and they would find their value by how big their flock was, how many people ascribed to their yoke. And so they would travel all over the region, and they would say, oh, you're a follower of that rabbi. That's nice, but let me tell you about my teachings. Because they only confess their sins six times. We confess eight times because that's what we really think at that point. That's where God knows that we're serious. They only give 12% to the temple. We give 16% to the temple. That way God understands how. And they were in this competition, and they would use guilt to guilt people into further following these yokes, these commands that they had created themselves. It was it was like basically we're in the, about to have college football season coming up. It's like college football recruiting. These people would come into these homes and be like, you don't want to go play for that team. That coach is no good. They've got no shot at the national championship. They got, we, let me tell you, you're going to be playing first game. You're a starter. You're this. You're that. And they're selling each other. That's what these guys were doing. That's how they were elevating their own distinction and their own designation as being important. They were building their own following instead of teaching people to follow God. They would make up new and ridiculous commands and practices to create new levels of spirituality so that people always felt lacking. Guilt. Guilt. That's exactly what guilt is. You never feel good enough. Not enough. 
Always feel like you're short. Always feel like you owe something. How do you recognize these kind of religious proselytizing and guilt mongers? It's this. They spread guilt instead of hope. At the very, if you're talking to them and they start telling you what's wrong instead of what's right with Christian, following God, telling you how to, how to do this instead of what God's done for you, that's spreading guilt instead of spreading hope. They elevate the elimination of sin as the top and only priority instead of intimacy with God. They're like, look, if you will get rid of all the bad things in your life, which let's be honest, we can't. We struggle. We all fall short. There are things I will always struggle with and sins that will entangle me for the rest of my life. But the truth is this. I want to get rid of those, but those I don't get rid of those to have intimacy with God. When I get closer to God, those things start to fall away. But instead, these guilt mongers, they start saying, deal with it so that when you stand before God, he might be happy with you. And that's guilt. They create a works-based response to sin that eliminates the power of God's grace. So you did this wrong. Here's what you got to do to make up for it. And once you do that, then maybe God will forgive you. But that's not what grace is. Grace is forgiveness not based on any merit. It's based on God's character. And so guilt, again, pushes us to this works-based response. They use guilt to control and create their own followers instead of sharing freedom from the chains that Christ has already freed us from. They limit the forgiveness of God based on our willingness to follow man-made rules, and they lay new burdens in front of people instead of seeing the work of Christ as removing the burden of sin and shame completely. And this is what 14, verse 14 means when it says that you make them twice as much a child of hell as yourself. He's like, look, you guys have missed it, but you're totally fooling these guys and making them think salvation is found in something other than Christ. The example is this. It's like they found someone in chains and in bondage, and instead of setting them free, they just added more chains onto them. It just enslaved them more. It, this new chain of guilt is like a, a chain lashed around our souls that keeps us from thinking that we will ever experience the true love, mercy, grace, and peace of God. And how does this impact us today? We end up doing this. We equate spiritual growth and maturity to a list of spiritual specific practices and habits. So you can only be mature if I do these three things. Spiritual disciplines are a wonderful thing. They help me grow. They, they're a challenge to me. They're they are wonderful tools. But they are not just because I pick up a tool doesn't mean I know how to use it and that it is perfect and that I have to, that it's just a, it becomes a tool in my hand. I can just do this, then it fits and it works. That's not what it is. And we end up thinking if we just do these five things, this list of things, it means I'm spiritually mature. And when, then we do this. We elevate the power of sin over the power of grace. We think that sin is greater than grace. And we get caught up in this idea that my sin is unforgivable, that I've got to do something to make myself presentable to God so that then I may receive his his forgiveness. And we fool ourselves into thinking we must do something to make God love us, accept us, and that we owe him. And at the end of it is this. We embrace the ideas that God's grace is not sufficient. And we think that we must do something every day to get back in God's good graces. Where's the danger of this show up in our life? We become susceptible to control. Control. 
The idea is this. We allow our sin and other people to have the power to control our outlook of our spiritual lives, and we end up living in spiritual squalor instead of the riches of God's grace. We let people tell us we are spiritual nothings, and we let our sin think that it is one, and it's bigger than God's grace, and we end up living like peasants in poverty when God has poured out the riches of his grace for us to live on. And if that is you today, if you've allowed this someone or your sin to control you, I want you to hear that's not biblical Christianity, and you have a basic misunderstanding of who God is and how God views you. God is a good and gracious God who has an abundance of grace and forgiveness that has already been poured out and demonstrated to you. You do not have to find the secret formula to unlock it. You do not have to do ten mighty deeds to get into the good graces of God. It is done, it is finished, and it is ready to be experienced. And when we think that our sin or somebody else can control us by telling things that we have to do to get to God, we don't understand who God is and how he views us. Control, guilt, manipulation, corruption. My question for you today is this. Has your view of the gospel been corrupted into a list of rules and regulations, a task list, a daily to-do list that seems to steal your joy more than it brings hope into your life? Have you ex- has your experience with God been controlled by what certain people have told you and said is the truth versus finding the truth and the good news of Jesus through a personal relationship with Christ? Have you embraced religion and the practice of religious acts over the act of the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ? Are you guilty of using these Pharisees' tools as manipulation and guilt to try to make yourself look better or feel better about who you are instead of finding your hope and peace by humbling yourself before the God who loves and created you? These are tough woes. Like, whoa, (laughs) right? I mean, you hear these things and you're like, but I love, actually love the fact that this is in here. That Jesus' cleansing of the temple was not just a physical act. That Jesus' cleansing of our soul is not just a physical thing. It's a spiritual, eternal, and soulful manner. And maybe as you've heard these teachings today, God's prompting something in your spirit. And what I love about God is he prompts us to respond. And maybe today it's just a simple way of saying, God, I, I need to let go of the control that my sin or someone has had over me. I've been living out of a corruption of the gospel and thinking that I needed to add burden and burden upon me instead of taking burden and burden off. And today, as we close in a time of prayer and response, maybe you just need to pray and say, God, I need to clean, cleanse the temple in my heart. I need to clear it out. I need to turn some tables over some beliefs that I've had and clear it out and start fresh. Maybe today after the service, you want to talk to someone. There's many people in our church that you could reach out to and say, hey, I need somebody to pray with me about this. I need somebody to just talk to about this. One of the things I love about our church is we're a place where people want to do life together. So don't hesitate to reach out to myself or anybody else here and say, could we process this together? Maybe it's with a husband and a wife. Maybe it's with another couple. But find a way to react and respond to the prompting that God has placed on your heart.
Will you pray with me? Now, these are tough words, but they're true. Oh, so true. And they're words for our good. Even though they may cut and seem like they hurt, at times, God, they are stripping away things that would keep us from having an intimate connection with you. They still are pleasure, our peace, our meaning, and our hope. So God, today, we have a time of prayer. Would you just hear our hearts cry? Some of us in here have been under the control of guilt. And God, today we need to trade that guilt for grace and realize there's nothing we owe you, there's nothing we can do to appease you, that God, it has been done, and we can let go of guilt today, and we can walk out of these doors full of grace, forgiveness, and we can leave sin and shame and guilt behind. God, there's some of us in here that have been living out of corruption of the gospel, that we think it's up to me. Just need to do better, be better, work harder. We're carrying these yokes, these burdens you never intended us to carry. God, would you allow us to shrug our shoulders and let those fall off today and embrace the promise that you say that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. May we walk out of here with our heads lifted, walking out in hope instead of the horrors of what we think it is that we have to do to follow you. And let us take these woes and transform them into wonderful moments of truth in our hearts and in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.